Good morning. Good morning. Um, for the regulars, you know that I'm not here on a regular basis, so you can come back next Sunday. <laughs> and for those of the are new and you get offended or anything by this, just, you know, give us a second chance and the real guys will be back. Um, we're going to talk about Philadelphia today. So if you were Pittsburgh Steeler fans, it's, yeah, I know. So um, I used to teach school. I retired this last year, but I had, uh, I had several Mormon kids in my classroom, and I'd had them in seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth, uh, here and there. And they were always trying to get me saved. <laughs> it's kind of like Stacy Heimke says the same thing. She says, I'm not going to worry about the end times until you and Bruce get saved. <laughs> um, but these guys would try to save me. And um, so finally, near the end of last year, one, one of the boys just lost his subtlety and he said, uh, well, the conversation went something like this. You know, Mr. Reed, you're, you're pretty open about your beliefs and, and you're honest with all the kids and you mostly treat us well. And, um, you know, when you're not calling us idiots or making terrorist jokes about the Muslim kids or feminist jokes about the girls, you treat us pretty well. And, um, you know, and you talk about God in the classroom, you could be a Mormon. <laughs> I said, well, no, I really couldn't. And he said, well, why not? And I said, well, because uh, that's a dead religion. Well, there followed several passages from the Book of Mormon uh, to which I replied, that's exactly the reason what I'm, of what I'm telling you. It's a dead religion. So he left, really smart kid. I knew he would be back. <laughs> took him two days to come back. Stayed after class and he said, you know, um, and he had argument after argument. And we talked about it and we debated about it. And finally, he exasperated. He said, well, your religion is dead too. Your religion is in a book. And I said, now you get the point. That is exactly right. If my religion is only in my book, then it is dead. If God only lives in the Book of Mormon, or in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, or in the Quran, then he is not God. And if Christ only came to save us from our sins, which is something that could be done before he showed up, then his coming isn't much of a coming. And if Christ is only the cross, or belief in saying his name, and if Christ only came to build this church and leave us with our lives exactly as they are now, then we have a really small God. But Jesus says that I bring you life, 
more abundant than you have ever known. I unlock all the doors. I present all the possibilities. My power is your power. My life is your life. My death is your resurrection. It isn't that he isn't in the book. And how would we know how to live our lives if we didn't read the book? And Duane says constantly, almost every Sunday, read the book. He's right. How would we know how to live our lives without reading the book? But he is bigger than the book. So, I said, any group that confines God to a book has built a religion of mythology. As the Sufi poets exclaimed, if God doesn't dance, then he is not God. And this is essentially one of the messages to the church in Philadelphia. The letter begins with, Behold, there are two great cheesesteak cheese sandwich places in Philadelphia. <laughs> oh no, that's a, that's a different letter. <laughs> there it is. To the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who, holy, who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. Like all of these letters, John is building a case of connection with God. And he uses Old Testament references. Um, this is from Isaiah 22. And in Isaiah, God says, he will replace the steward of David with one who is called his servant. Jesus, and he shall lock and unlock the doors of the kingdom. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. He has unlocked the doors for us. He makes it plain that the inheritance of God has been given to those who understand the truth. And this mirrors, I know that you have a little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down from heaven from my God, and I will also write on him a new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In verse 9 of the letter, he makes it plain that the inheritance of God has been given to those who understand the truth. And this mirrors the eighth chapter of John, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They retorted that Abraham was their father. And there then comes a whole set of passages in which 
Jesus exclaims that you have a physical inheritance from Abraham, but I am talking about a spiritual inheritance from God. The Jews were active in the church in Philadelphia, and it seemed they might meet in the synagogue on Saturdays and with the Christians on a different day. And the synagogue Jews were willing to entertain the idea that Jesus was the Messiah, but that his coming was meant to perpetuate Judaism. John's emphasis here is that Jesus is something brand new. He came to fulfill the law, not to perpetuate it. And he now, and not the religion constructed by the Jews, is the way to the Father. I am the way and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me, by me, or of me. Jesus' contention with the Jews in Jerusalem and now here John with the Jews in Philadelphia is that they recognize that they are physical inheritors of Abraham, but they do not recognize that their spiritual inheritance has passed from them to a brand new people, us. He's talking about things of the spirit, not physical inheritance. Unfortunately, these words, uh, synagogue of Satan that you read, became a rallying cry for anti-Semitism in the medieval period and then resurrected again in World War II, the synagogue of Satan. The pillars at the end of this letter, there were two pillars that stood outside the temple in Jerusalem. And one was named Boaz, which stands for strength, and the other was Yachim, which means endurance. The last part of that is we shall have new names written on us. There are 20 lessons that you could teach out of this letter. I'm not going to teach them all, so you, we will not be here all day. But I want to talk about the truth, the open door, and the new name. In Philadelphia, there's a question of truth. And the question of clinging to what is known or launching out into the unknown, into an open door. The Jews wanted to fit Jesus into the continuity of Judaism. They wanted to reconcile him with the Old Testament and believe that his coming had not been to set the world on fire. It had been to perpetuate the already known existence of Yahweh. At the time, this seemed plausible. The first century Christians, they had no church, they had no structure, they had no Bible. They may have had several of Paul's letters or perhaps one of the other Gospels, but no church in the Mediterranean had a collection of everything that we have. An early writing as to the books or listing of the books available at Antioch in 200, which was a large Christian center, listed only the letter to Philadelphia, four of Paul's epistles, Mark, Matthew, and the shepherd of Hermas. 
How many of you have read The Shepherd of Hermas? One. <laughs> it was later eliminated. So there were lots of writings and books going on, but there was not the containment of one canon at this time. There was no finality of doctrine. The Trinity would not exist for another 600 years. It existed, but it didn't exist as a doctrine. <laughs> the sacraments, other than communion and baptism, were not universally applied. 90% of the people in the Christian, early Christian movement were illiterate. So they couldn't read anything on their own. Everything was read to them. They were basically out there on their own. The Jews had doctrine, they had sacraments, they had traditions, they had a book, and the Christians had none. The Jews of Philadelphia were trying to weave Christ into Judaism. They were trying to put new wine into old wineskins. The point they were missing was that Jesus had not come to perpetuate their religion. He had come to revolutionize life, create a new way of living and a new way of dying. The Jews were trying to create truth for them, but man cannot create truth. Truth is not something we write. Truth is someone. Jesus did not say, these writings are the truth, or this doctrine is the truth. He said, I am the truth. The lesson from Philadelphia is worth repeating today. Otherwise, we do the same thing that I had accused my Mormon students of doing, creating their own truth and containing it in a book. But it is a scary thing to press out beyond the limits, to launch out from the shore. But that is where he is. He wasn't in the Judaism in Philadelphia. He was out in the world. And once we learn about him, that's where we need to experience him. So this is an analogy that C.S. Lewis used to illustrate that point. If a man once looked at the Atlantic from a beach and then goes to look at a map of the Atlantic, he turns from something real to something less real, from real waves to a bit of colored paper. But the thing not to forget is that the map is based on real experiences of real people, and if you want to get anywhere, you need a map. But the map is not the ocean. The Bible is not God, but it is based on the experience of people who sailed the ocean with him. The Bible is not the truth, but it is based on the truth, on Jesus. God is not all thrills and no work, like watching waves at the beach. To believe that the whole of God is contained in the map will not do us well in life. And to believe that the truth of modern religion is to believe the earth is flat, is to believe the earth is flat. We are back sitting in Philadelphia. It was a city built in 189 and named uh, by the king of Lydia to honor the 
love of his brother, and thus filio, the Greek word for brotherly love. We've just been to a service. It's a combined service of the Messianic Jews and the new Christians. We're outside sitting by ourselves. We're thinking, what if the Jesus Jews are wrong? What if what we have thought is not true? And what if God turns out to be different than what we have been told? And what if whole layers of what we think we should be and what we must believe turn out just to be someone else's ideas? What if God becomes wholly unpredictable? What if God decides to be God instead of what I want him to be? What if there's a door he opens that is new and it's not part of the old traditions and knowledge? John was telling him that those who thought they knew from the beginning, the Jews, knew nothing. Those who were open to a new life of the Spirit, the seekers, would receive the truth. The Jews had rejected the newness of God and had crucified him, and their truth was in their traditions and practices. The new believers needed to depend on the Spirit of God within them for guidance and power, and the truth was alive inside of them. The Pharisees trusted in religion. They had become religious. And religious people are more concerned with being right than living right. John's message to the Philadelphians is that God is out of the box. All things are possible. It is a new beginning. There is a new covenant. And to remain a Jew of religion or become a Christian of religion only gives us a physical inheritance, not a spiritual one. He is making it clear that life is to be lived in the spirit and not in our minds. We are to use the maps which are drawn for us by those who have experienced the sea, but we are to launch out and sail to Newfoundland on our own. The Pharisees were using the maps of the known world John was telling the Philadelphians that there was a whole new map. Doors would be open. And as long as they had the map of the Spirit, they would not need oars or anchors or rudders, and they could sail under the wind of God into the unknown. But that's a scary thought. <laughs> into the unknown with God. That is a wild idea. I'm going to leave it all behind. Everything I have known, and I'm going to commit myself to set sail under the, under the wind of God into the unknown of life with Him. It's incredible. The door is open. I have set before you an open door. No man can shut that door. We no longer have to look through a window and think that we see the whole world. We cannot be new wine poured into old wineskins. 
We cannot be the perpetuation of Judaism or Mormonism or covetantism, however you say that. <laughs> we cannot be the new if we are the old. We cannot walk through the doors if we are comfortable sitting on our butts. Do we want the unknown or do we want the known? Uh, I have breakfast with my graduated seniors here and there whenever they need to talk about stuff. So a couple weeks ago I had um, breakfast with a young girl who is headed off to Columbia. And she is petrified. Um, terrified was the word she used. Um, but we talked about that. And she said, you know, nobody else in my class seems to be afraid. They're okay with this. They're all excited to go to school. And I'm just terrified about this. I said, what's, what's happening? And so we talked about it. And I said, well, you know, your classmates are island hopping. They have a map. They, they're going to ASU. They have other friends that have gone to ASU or U of A or uh, Northern Arizona. They have a perception of what it's going to be like. They can come home for a meal. They can get their laundry done. They can uh, share, their friends are going to be there. You, on the other hand, are setting sail into the unknown. You have no map. And it terrifies you. You are packing your trunk and getting on the ship with Columbus and sailing off into the unknown. And that's why you're afraid. I lost my place. Uh, Revelations 3.8. And I, uh, I, won't, I won't put it up again. But there's a, uh, in verse 8, he says, I know you have little power. But in the old Greek manuscripts, it reads differently. It says, I have placed you before you an open door that no one can shut because you have a little power. Walking through the door takes a little power. And when the word power is spoken in the scripture, it refers to the Holy Spirit. We are to exercise our spiritual power. The Philadelphians had nothing but a little spiritual power. They didn't have the Bible or the creeds or the doctrines or the structure or the liturgy. But the Spirit is enough. This is mirrored in the writings of the monk Thomas Merton about the first century church. He says, they realized that faith is not belief in a doctrine. It is not a church for, search for our missing peace. It is not a conviction of salvation. It is not the subject to a motive. It is not religious myth. Nor is it a conviction based on rational analysis or the fruit of scientific evidence. It is not emotional phenomena. Faith cannot be borrowed. It is the revelation of the Spirit on any terms he wishes to reveal himself. God is Spirit, and if we are to find him, we must live in the Spirit.
Faith is the revelation of the Spirit on any terms He wishes to reveal Himself. So when we are born again, a life relationship is formed with God and it's a starting over, but it is not the end. And like real birth, it is the beginning. And we are the baby of God. And our difference from the angels and other created things is that we are not who we appear to be. We appear as humans, but we are actually spirits. And the real person is not who we see on the outside. The real person is inside. And he has named us. Um, the essayist Annie Dillard says, we are words God speaks from his mouth, and even when we are caught in the colliding molecules of earthly crumbling, we are still holy, sparkling words spoken by God. I want to be a sparkling word. I don't want to be grumpy and, and tough and mean. I want to be a sparkling word. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and my own new name. God births us and he names us. So I, teach, I used to teach AP U.S. history and when we would get uh, along in the manifest destiny stuff, um, we would um, talk about the colliding cultures of the Indians and the whites on the plains. And the Indian cult, and so we would investigate the Indian culture. And um, the Indians had three virtues that they held above everything else. One was courage, another was generosity, and the third was honesty, which tells you uh, why they had such conflict with us <laughs> uh, in the plains. So, when you, and then they had a naming process. And... Um, you, would have, you might have several names when you went through uh, your lifetime. Uh, your original name would be a, uh, a childhood name. And they would uh, base that on some significant event that, that would have happened um, during your birth or before or after. So after you were a child for a, a while, baby, they would take you out and uh, present you to the Great Spirit your elders would and your parents and stuff. And so, so um, uh, Steve is uh, our bass player up here. Steve is born. And they take him, this little bundle, this little guy, and they take him out and they're going to present him to the great spirit. And they can't think of his name. And, and they're just presenting him. And all of a sudden, a dog runs through the camp and deposits a load. <laughs> and they go, ah. A significant event. We shall name him Little Dog Pooping. <laughs> and he would carry that name. Steve would carry his Little Dog Pooping name for a while until he revealed the real person inside himself. Do you have that next slide up there? Um, they would go through... They, the, the Indians believed that, oh, you can't do the whole thing. Okay. The Indians believed that there was a circle of life, 
and that you came down from the spirit world on this circle of life. And e, there were four directions, and this is the direction in the north, and these are attributes which you would display. So if Steve then displayed the attributes of the north, of leadership and power, then he could receive a name, he'd get rid of his little dog name, and we would name him something that had to do with wisdom or mountains or winters or storms, the color white, powerful animals like the buffalo. He could become white buffalo or something like that. And then there are th uh, three other directions. The west is contemplative. It's a wind, the spirit, dark colors, solitary animals, desert, woods, autumn, uh, people who tend to be spiritual are more introverted. If, and, um, if you are more reticent and don't mix well with people and um, things more introverted, you could be from that area. And then there's the East. Or the East is visionary. They see things from afar. They are the dreamers. Um, they are far-seeing. Like, and the birds are part of their uh, um, designation. Summer. These are people who are always in activities, always love people. They're moving and shaking the world. And then the south are perceptions, earth colors, green, small animals, water, and uh, people who see things in detail. So the purpose of a, of a Native American, of an Indian, would be to, you come down in one of these areas, and your purpose then is to move and gain the attributes of the other four places. So you could be born in the east and you could be far-seeing, but if you don't travel south and get all the detail work to get to reach your goal, it's not going to happen. And if you don't have some spiritual aspect of purpose in the west, then it's not going to make any sense to you. So the thing is to travel. So in the 11th grade, when my kids get to the 11th grade, and I've usually had them two or three times, I name them. I give them their Indian names. Um, it's a big deal. This is a big deal to them. Um, generally, the first question that is asked in July is, when are we going to get our names? Because it's a tradition that I've kept through the school. A couple of the students wrote me letters of goodbye this last spring, and one of them said, I will never ever forget the name you gave me, Light on Mountains, and your analysis of my character. It is a name I hope to live in. Sometimes I tell people that is my name. Another student, Reed, you are not perfect. <laughs> Sometimes you have your grouchy pants on, and you are always too demanding but you have changed my life. You called me warrior spirit. You told me about the courage inside me and that I would have to become acquainted with hard work if I was to make myself into that name. God names us. After we are birthed in Christ, this should initiate in us a quest, a journey to discover our name in him. Christ is a journey. He is not an easy chair. And our quest should be to discover our name in him 
and not settle for Steve or Dwayne or dog pooping. <laughs> we are meant to discover our name in Christ, and this is how we complete each other, united in love and His will. And we come to hear His voice when He calls us. So I grew up in Detroit, down by the river, and it, it was a working man's neighborhood. And Mr. Persico was the voice of night. And we would stay out past streetlights. We could stay out until we would hear Mr. Persico yell out the door, Lara, questo è tutto which means, roughly, it is finished. <laughs> it's over. Inside. We knew the voice of night and flashlight tag or kick the can or hiding in the bushes. It was over until tomorrow. And really, there was no sense staying out once Laura went in because she was pretty hot. <laughs> but he would call her in and it was over. Christ is that voice to us. He is the voice of night. He is the voice of the daytime. He is the voice that calls our name. He is our destiny. He's not the lottery of salvation. He didn't come to save us. He came to show us how to live. He named us. He will call us by name. We are given life as a gift for not, for not for what we can do in ourselves, but what we can give to each other. And if we are to do His will, it is not found in our minds or our desires or our feelings. It is found in hearing Him. The life of the Spirit is a flame. It is not a candle. It is not a lamp. It is a burning bush. We do not have to settle with being a candle. The more we embrace the Spirit, the more we become Him. And so we create a greater capacity to be enlightened and inspired and to do His will. His coming was not about bailing us out or about goodness and love, and our pathway to God is about finding our way to where God is. It's about hearing our name and doing what He asks us to do. Francis of Assisi said this about living in the Spirit and hearing the voice of God. Jesus left us and returned to God. He can no longer be seen. So the Holy Spirit must open our eyes to His presence and allow the immediacy of the heart to meet Him on the way home. We do not know the way to God, but our spirit yearns for it, and the Holy Spirit opens the door continually, calling our name. In the beginning of the church, the people of Christ were like deer in the woods. They were honest and righteous without thinking that was a duty. They loved each other and did not know the golden rule. They shared property and gave of themselves and did not read the commandments. They, deserved, they deceived no one 
and did not realize that they should be men to be trusted. They were reliable and loyal and did not know this was good faith. They lived freely with each other, giving and taking, and did not know they were generous. And so it was to live outside history, outside religion, with the wind of the Spirit. We live in between the lines sometimes, just like the Jews in Philadelphia. We desire our own comfort, our own power, our own way, and in our mind we rationalize how much we can get away with, and God will still love us. We rationalize our personal, political, and religious positions. Well, I really can't afford to tithe, and well, I don't have enough time for this, and well, those people are wrong anyway, and those people don't deserve help. And she did this to me, so she has it coming. But it was only a small lie. We rationalize our lives instead of letting them be free. We measure our lives against what we know of religion and rules and doctrines and regulations. But people, the Christians in Philadelphia, knew that there was an open door for them to live with the Spirit of God, free, free. If we are no longer judgmental, and this is Thomas Merton again, on the Spirit, living in the Spirit, if we are no longer judgmental, no longer ambitious for the things of the world, no longer motivated by greed or envy or achievement, if we do not worship anything as an idol, if our efforts of life are motivated by love and bringing the corner of our world into harmony with God, if our ambitions do not cause envy or strife or neglect or greed or sorrow, then we are on the path of God and He knows our name. If we live this way, irregardless of the direction that God has placed us down on the circle of life, then we will discover our name. We will discover the new name that he has written on us. And we will come to live it. We will walk in a circle and we will become a whole person, a whole human being. And we will see that with God, everything is possible. We will set forth on the open sea with the wind of God at our back. This morning, he is calling us by the name that he has given us. And he is opening a door that no man can shut. We need to consult our Bible map. We need to pack our steamer trunk. We won't need to walk up the gangplank onto the deck of the Santa Maria. We need to face west, lose sight of the shore, and sail somewhere where he wants us on the great sea of the possibilities 
of Christ. We need to hear his voice. We need to know our name. We need to realize that there is an open door and all things are possible in Christ. Father, thank you for this time. We ask that you'd bless the communion today, that you would meet us in that place, and that sometime today we would ask the Spirit to open to us, to speak to us, that we would set out today and measure ourselves from this day on a quest to determine and decide and sail with you on the great voyage of life. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.